to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the August 2022 Law Notes edition of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the U.S. and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode will feature a discussion of a variety of health law issues, including a discussion of cause of death printed on death certificates, proposed updates to the Affordable Care Act, and the latest updates on efforts to ban so-called conversion therapy practices nationwide. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you again, Shane. Our first case this month is a bit unexpected, as most practitioners never are confronted with intentional infliction of emotional distress cases. This first case is out of Georgia, and I want to give our listeners just a brief content warning before we jump in. There will be discussion of suicide and suicidal ideation, so if this is not the day that you want to focus on those issues, please skip ahead and rejoin us when we talk about HHS regulations. Okay, so uh, this is a sad story compounded by professional negligence, in my opinion. What happened was uh, a, a gay couple, two men, uh, Louis Mayorga, who is the biological father of a teenage girl, Caitlin, and uh, his husband. Caitlin, well, we're not told how, but Caitlin committed suicide. She was 15 years old and uh, her body was discovered her father began to make funeral arrangements with a company called Southern Cremations. So you know what kind of a, a burial this is gonna be. And uh, contracted, uh, Southern Cremations contracted with a company called Vital Records to take care of generating the death certificate. On January 1, 21, 2021, Mr. Mayorga's husband received by email, a draft version of the death certificate created by Vital Records from a Southern Cremation employee. It was, uh, the email attached the draft and the email said that the draft included handwritten corrections and required approval to be finalized. So uh, the draft listed Mayorga as the father, listed his husband as the stepfather, and included a capital X over the boxes requiring a mother's maiden name and Caitlin's educational level. In addition to these marks, there was a line of text, handwritten text reading, quote, I am so confused, LOL. The stepdad and the father have the same last name, question mark. Now, according to the complaint in this case, Southern Cremation had actual knowledge of Mayorga's same-sex marriage and the circumstances of Caitlin's uh, passing. And Vital Records had either actual or constructive knowledge of the same because their source of information was what Mayorga had told uh, to uh, Southern Cremations. So uh, Mayorga got this, his, his husband passed him the email and the attachment and he really he freaked out and felt very, I mean, he was already, he was grieving, he was, blaming himself, wondering what, what went wrong. And uh, he began to think, 
himself suicidal thoughts and, and he was he was so distraught that his husband brought him to the hospital and uh he was in there for a few days till they stabilized him and, and sent him home they accumulated over eleven thousand dollars in hospital bills just for those few days well they sued southern cremations and the uh the contractor the vital records people they sued both of them and they had two theories of the lawsuit intentional infliction of emotional distress and negligence now the problem with the negligence claim is that in order to sue for negligent infliction of emotional distress or plain negligence you have to show a physical injury and he had no physical injury his injuries were psychological but he did incur over eleven thousand dollars in medical expenses uh, is, there, is it possible that he could hold them liable for that uh, as as far as intentional infliction of emotional distress there he's looking for uh damages for emotional distress and intentional infliction of emotional uh, emotional distress is a hard claim to win you have to generally show absolutely outrageous conduct by the defendant that either intended or uh would have to know would reasonably know would cause severe emotional distress and the severe emotional distress uh it has to be extremely severe it, it can't be just you're mildly upset or something like that uh and here i mean he was he was so distraught that he was thinking suicidal thoughts and his husband brought him to the hospital and they stabilized him over the next three days and calmed him down presumably administering some uh, medications to help achieve that end but he didn't have any physical injuries so you know these are these are difficult cases to win and uh both defendants filed motions to dismiss so this isn't on a summary judgment this is a motion to dismiss they said the complaint fails to state a claim that the factual allegations were not sufficient to state a claim for either intentional fiction of emotional distress or ordinary negligence and uh the district the trial court in Georgia dismissed the case granted the motion to dismiss as to both said that uh bad as it was what they did didn't strike them as uh, severe enough outrageous enough to constitute uh, a claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress and as far as the negligence claim went the uh, the trial judge said well the uh, the impact rule you have to have an actual physical impact that causes an injury of some sort uh, therefore ordinary negligence case was ruled out uh, so they appealed to the Georgia Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals affirmed in part reversed in part which is what makes it interesting they affirmed as to the ordinary negligence claim and there uh, you know what are the factors the court looks at in an ordinary negligence claim a physical impact to the plaintiff the physical impact causes emotional distress uh, rather causes physical injury and the physical injury to the plaintiff causes the plaintiff's mental suffering or emotional distress so the problem here uh said the trial judge there is no physical impact to the plaintiff therefore there is no physical impact to cause the emotional distress uh, physical injury and any physical injury since there is none is not available to cause the mental suffering or the emotional distress so they went through the three factors and they said it's not there now there is some case law in Georgia which the court discusses that allows pecuniary loss to substitute for physical injury in some cases 
But uh, evidently, that was at the intermediate appellate level, and, and evidently, the Georgia Supreme Court has cast doubt on that in a case that's distinguishable on the facts. And uh, so there was at least one member of the court on the Court of Appeal who thought that this might be an appropriate case to apply the pecuniary loss rule and say that the $11,000 that they incurred in medical expenses substitutes for the physical injury requirement because it's something tangible. And the main reason for the physical injury requirement is to require that there be some sort of tangible injury as a result of the alleged negligence. But that was just one member of the court. So the court as a whole affirmed the trial court on dismissing the negligence claim. But when it came to intentional infliction of emotional distress, the court, this is an incredibly empathetic decision uh, written by Judge Trenton Brown, who said, we think that at least at the pleading stage, there is a plausible claim here that this was so outrageous. I mean, you're talking about someone who just lost their teenage daughter through a suicide who was destroyed, that anyone would have to know that a parent would be destroyed in those circumstances, would be particularly vulnerable. And here he is joking about the fact that the father and the stepfather had the same surname with a question mark and an LOL. I mean, this is incredibly insensitive and hitting this guy at a particularly vulnerable moment psychologically. We think that that's enough to get you over the hump of pleading. He says, we're, we're not going to predict what happens when this goes to trial or uh, if there's a settlement, you know, if there's a settlement and then there's no further thing. But if this goes to trial, we can't predict what a jury would think about this. But we would think as a matter of law that the facts that were pled were sufficient to meet the requirements for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Four qualifications under Georgia common law. Specific elements are the conduct giving rise to the claim was intentional or reckless. The conduct was extreme and outrageous. The conduct caused emotional distress, and the emotional distress was severe. Well, certainly emotional distress was severe here. Hospitalization was required. The conduct giving rise to the claim wasn't intentional. That is, it, it isn't whether they intended to cause emotional distress, whether it was reckless and under all the circumstances raising a likelihood that it will cause emotional distress. And was it extreme and outrageous? Well, the court said, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's writing this on a draft of a death certificate that he's giving to the father of a girl who committed suicide. And, and uh, they argued, the defendants argued, yeah, but he didn't email it to him. He emailed it to his husband. And the court said, well, big difference, big difference. That was, they knew they were sending it to him. So uh, at least it gets, past the motion to dismiss. And frequently when cases get past the motion to dismiss in a civil case, when it always, it's coming down to money here, they're not asking for injunctive relief. So it's gonna to go to a jury if they demand a jury and maybe a jury will find this to be outrageous enough. And maybe the defendants will wanna avoid that and avoid the court time and avoid the cost of litigating and offer a settlement. So it's possible there will be a settlement in this case and we may never hear any more about it. But certainly if the case turns into a jury verdict and the defendants appeal, we may hear about it because this may be a case in which the Georgia Supreme Court has to address the question of the pecuniary loss rule for ordinary negligence and may also uh, have to address the question of what really is outrageous enough to constitute uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress and impose damages in a situation where there is no physical injury or physical impact.
Wow. I mean, truly a heartbreaking case on yeah. so many levels. But it's also about educating people in the professions about same-sex marriages and same-sex marriages with children. And that, you know, joking about someone's same-sex marriage, which is how the, the, the husband took it, the father took it. He said, they're disparaging my marriage. Maybe they're implicitly suggesting that it had something to do with my daughter's suicide. And so, you know, he's really, he's really suffering here. I mean, my heart just goes out to this family. Yeah. And I should mention that the story was written for the Law Notes by a new writer. We have Ashton Hesse, who was one of my contract students during my last contracts class at New York Law School last fall. And she was eager to start writing for Law Notes. And I gave her this as her first case. She did a wonderful job on it. Well, I didn't know that this was the first time writer handling this case for us. Excellent writing yes. indeed. And just just uh, first year, you know, just uh, first year of law school. But obviously, she had torts, and uh, she was able to uh, decode what the court was talking about, and worked out very well. Well, thank you for bringing this to our attention. So, shifting gears, one of the big news items is the proposed updates to the Health and Human Services Regulation, and this has been a story we've been following for a long time, how things have kind of yo-yoed back and forth between the Obama administration, the Trump administration, now the Biden administration. I'd love if you could take us through where we're at in the process now. Okay, well, this is this is part of a wave of new regulations that's gonna be coming out for the Biden administration. Uh, it takes time to lay the foundation and do all the groundwork and everything to propose a new regulation, which is intended to reverse a previous administration's regulation. It's not like you're starting from scratch. You have to show not only that the new regulation is appropriate under the statute, but that the old regulation was not. It needs to be replaced. And uh, this is a story that really goes back to the Obama administration, as you mentioned. The Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, just, I think it was during the lame duck session of the Congress that was going out. You know, the new Congress was coming in and January 2011, and the Republicans were taken over because the midterms were a disaster for the Obama administration during their first term. And But they managed to put together the votes to pass the Affordable Care Act, which includes Section 1557, the anti-discrimination provision. And 1557 says that an individual shall not, on the grounds prohibited under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 64, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, the Age Discrimination Act of 1975, or Section 794 of Title 29, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any health program or activity, any part of which is receiving federal financial assistance, including credits, subsidies, or contracts of insurance, or under any program or activity that is administered by an executive agency or any entity established under this title, this title referring to the Affordable Care Act. But clearly by its language, it extends beyond the Affordable Care Act is to any health program that gets any kind of federal money. And uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 64 is the race discrimination and public accommodation section of the Civil Rights Act of 64. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 72 is a ban on sex discrimination by educational institutions that get federal money. The Age Discrimination Act uh, answers itself. You know what that's about, age discrimination. And Title 29 of seven, uh, Section 794 
is better known as Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities by any program that receives federal money. So basically, without listing the actual grounds of forbidden discrimination, but by re referring to other statutes, Section 1557 forbids discrimination based on race, sex, age, or disability by any health care program or activity that receives federal financial assistance. All right, so this is passed in 2010. And because of the phase-in provisions, it wasn't really going to go into full effect until 2014 because they had to set up the exchanges, the insurance exchanges, and they had to write regulations and all this kind of stuff. And it was a voluminous statute. And Section 1557 was just one provision out of an enormous array of provisions. So uh, it took a while for the Obama administration to get their act together on that and to issue regulations. But the regulations were finalized in 2016, the last year of the Obama administration. And by 2016, by 2016, federal courts had begun to accept the argument, usually under Title VII, that gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. There, there was even a decision from the 11th Circuit that it violated the Equal Protection Clause as sex discrimination in a case involving a transgender librarian for the state legislature in Georgia, I believe. So the Obama administration also had been asked by the people representing Gavin Grimm, a transgender high school student in Virginia who was suing for the right to use the, the men's uh, boys' restrooms in his high school. The Obama administration was asked, would they uh, uh, say something here? Would they uh, take a position on the case? And they sent a letter. I think it was the Education Department under Title IX. They sent a letter to the uh, federal district judge who was hearing the case initially saying, we agree that gender identity discrimination violates Title IX. So if it violates Title IX, then under Section 1557, it should violate the Affordable Care Act as well, because any discrimination forbidden under Title IX is also forbidden under the Affordable Care Act. The two are linked in that sense. And in fact, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which enforces Title VII, had back in 2012 issued a decision, the Mia Macy case, holding that gender identity discrimination violates Title VII. Title VII is at least formally irrelevant to the Affordable Care Act, although Title VII is relevant to the issue of health care if uh, employees receive health insurance from their employer. So there's discrimination by an employer in health insurance. But what we're talking about in the Affordable Care Act is the only kind of employer discrimination that might come within the Affordable Care Act is, is if an employer is self-insured with respect to insurance and is acting as an insurance company, in a sense, if you consider them to be an insurance company for that purpose. But they probably don't receive any federal money, which is part of the problem. But under the Affordable Care Act, many insurance companies will be receiving federal money if they're participating on the exchanges and if they're providing coverage that is uh, provided in order to comply with the coverage requirements of the Affordable Care Act. This is all incredibly complicated. That's why the statute is voluminous and the regulations. In fact, the Obama administration included gender identity but didn't expressly include sexual orientation in their 2016 regs. And they left ambiguous the question whether in order to comply with the coverage requirements of the Affordable Care Act, a health plan had to cover gender-affirming care. They said you can't discriminate with respect to gender identity in the provision of health care 
but they didn't spell out in their proposed regulation or the final reg what that meant. But I remember we were all speculating at the time, would the courts interpret that non-discrimination requirement to include providing surgical procedures that are part of transition if such surgical procedures are also used for other reasons, for dealing with other situations. For example, a mastectomy, well, that may be used as part of a gender transition, female to male, but it's also part of treatment for breast cancer. So uh, a hospital that offers mastectomies can't discriminate based on gender identity as to whom they offer them to. Although then there's an argument whether it's cosmetic surgery or whether it's medically necessary surgery, which is an issue under insurance policies. And it's been a battle and it's an ongoing battle to persuade agencies and courts and insurance companies that a mastectomy is part of gender affirming care is medically necessary treatment. You know, the, uh, the IRS has agreed. There was a decision by the IRS that said gender affirming care is medically necessary care based on the consensus of certain professional associations and stuff that this is medically necessary treatment for gender dysphoria. But at any rate, we're getting into the weeds here. But the point is that the Obama administration included this and they were promptly sued. You know, there were states that are affected by this because states provide insurance coverage to uh, their employees. So they're covered by the Affordable Care Act and they're, they're covered by Section 1557. And so there was litigation against the Obama administration. They went to their favorite judges, uh, which are down in the Northern District of Texas, uh, many of them, but other places as well. And they got preliminary injunctions against these regulations going into effect while the challenges were proceeding. But of course, this threat came out in 2016 and then Donald Trump was elected. And the Trump administration had to take a position on this litigation that's going on. And they told the judge, don't worry, we won't enforce those provisions because we intend to replace them with a new regulation. So the Obama administration regulations were never put into effect. But that doesn't stop individuals from bringing lawsuits under Section 1557, which they can. And so there have been lawsuits around the country under Section 1557, and there have been some very good decisions holding the gender identity discrimination is covered under Section 1557. But the government is under an injunction not to bring these actions. It, it, so, it, so it's left to individuals. All right, so the Trump administration was getting ready. They took their time. And as I say, this is complicated, drafting new regulations to take the place of old regulations, even if they haven't gotten into effect, they at least were officially published in the Federal Register and in Code of Federal Regulations, so they're there. The Trump administration came out with their proposed new regs in the spring of 2020, which is Trump's last year as president, uh, although he didn't know it yet and still claims not to know it because he claims to have been reelected. So he's, you know, he's got his summer, his all-time White House substitute in Mar-a-Lago, I guess. Maybe he's got a, a, a mock-up of the executive office desk and everything he can sit behind, pretend he's president. But at any rate, uh, we're getting, I'm wandering off a little here, but it's a good story. And so they put out their proposed regulation and their proposed regulation was intended not only to remove gender identity, but to uh, say that they interpreted the language of Section 1557 as only to apply to programs and entities created under the Affordable Care Act, not to apply outside of that. 
And they said, because insurance companies do not provide health care, they just finance it. We don't think insurance companies are covered either. And in addition, the Obama administration regulations imposed all kinds of procedural requirements on uh, providers of health care, including designating an individual who was in charge of ensuring compliance with the non-discrimination requirements and for investigating complaints and to have an appeals procedure and to uh, have training for staff and document training for staff on how to deal with the non-discrimination uh, provisions. Uh, I mean, there's a whole raft of procedural regulations and the Trump regulations just rescinded all that. So they were announced and while they were announced, the Supreme Court's decision in the Bostock case was pending. It was argued that spring, decision anticipated in June, and uh, they hadn't yet officially published the final version of the regulations uh, in the Federal Register. And then the Bostock decision came out. And the Bostock decision said that it's impossible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity without discriminating on the basis of sex. Now, Bostock was a Title VII case. It was a consolidation of three employment discrimination cases involving employees who lost their jobs because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, according to their complaints. I mean, the defendants dispute various aspects of the facts, but this was according to the complaints. And the issue was whether Title VII covers these claims. Now, as I mentioned before, the EEOC which administers Title VII as early as 2012 took the position gender identity was covered. And in 2015, in a case involving David Baldwin, a gay uh, air traffic controller, uh, who was denied a permanent position he applied for and was qualified for, he claimed because of his sexual orientation, uh, the EEOC said, yes, his claim is also covered under Title VII, uh, under its jurisdiction over federal employment. And so we had the EEOC being on record as to that. Now the EEOC's decision was 2015. It was during the Obama administration. Okay, so the Trump administration's reaction to Bostock was it only involves Title VII. They only decided that you can't fire people because they're gay or trans. It didn't decide anything else. And it disclaimed deciding anything about any other sex discrimination statute. And if you read Justice Gorsuch's opinion for the court, uh, you could conclude that it's a very, very narrow decision. It just said you can't fire someone for being trans or or gay or maybe bisexual. You know, but it didn't talk about that in the opinion. The point is they took the position. It's very, very minimalist. It only applies to Title VII. It only applies to certain kinds of fact situations. And we're going to ignore it. We're going to say it doesn't apply to Title IX. And if it doesn't apply to Title IX, then it doesn't apply to Section 1557. So uh, they went ahead and they published the final version of these regs, which were promptly challenged in court, you know. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Trump lost the election. And even though he doesn't admit it, he did take his helicopter out of D.C. and not attend the inauguration of Mr. Biden. So he abandoned the White House. He even took lots of stuff with him that he wasn't supposed to take. But that's another story, too. But... At any, at any rate, on the day he was sworn into office, President Biden signed an executive order that afternoon. It was one of the first executive orders he signed in his administration. He said the Bostock decision should be applied to all federal rules and laws banning sex discrimination, unless from the context of the statute, uh, you have to conclude otherwise. 
but he charged all of the agencies that have any role in enforcing sex discrimination to go back through their regulations and their guidelines and their rules and adjust them to reflect the Bostock decision as appropriate. And within months, there were announcements put out by the Department of Health and Human Services and also the Department of Education that they were going to interpret Title IX as covering gender identity discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination. And they were going to enforce it accordingly. Now, they couldn't just declare the Trump regulations withdrawn because you have to go through the whole Administrative Procedure Act process and you have to propose substitute regulations. And that's what came out on July 25th, just uh, not too long ago. We're, we're recording this on, uh, on August 2nd. So July 25th, they came out with this proposed new regulation. The uh, title of it is Non-Discrimination in Health Programs and Activities. And it was to be sent, uh, released to the public on July 25th, sent to the uh, publisher of the, of the Federal Register and on the date that it appears in the Federal Register. And it may even have appeared by now. It's usually within a few days of its release. But you count 60 days. You count 60 days from the date it's published. And that is the public notice and comment period when you could submit comments. But what they've done is they, they took the Obama administration regulations as their starting point. They rescinded virtually all the changes that the Trump regulations made and substituted not only the Obama administration things, but they added sexual orientation because under Bostock, that's established now. So uh, sexual orientation discrimination violates Title line, although some uh, Trump-appointed federal judges don't agree at this point. We'll see. And gender identity discrimination violates Title line. Therefore, by reference, they vi violate Section 1557. They restored most of the procedural requirements. They restored the coverage for insurance companies. They even extended further. They said for the first time, and HHS has not taken this position for before that the Affordable Care Act non-discrimination requirements apply to Medicare Part B, which is the general health insurance program for retired people in this country, age 65 and over. So they extended that. And uh, you might think that not many people transition after age 65, but you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. It takes people different periods of time in their lives and their situations to, to decide when they want to transition or if they want to transition and how far they want to take it in terms of surgery and everything else. But there are people who transition in old age and, and whether Medicare covers it. Medicaid, we've had litigation around the country because Medicaid is a joint state-federal program and the states write a lot of the rules. And so there's been litigation about whether state Medicaid covers uh, gender transition and the degree to which it covers gender transition. Most of the time, the courts have agreed that it is discrimination based on gender identity not to cover all of the necessary elements of uh, gender affirming care for a transition. So we've had pretty good luck in those cases. It's been primarily private litigation because, as I said, there have been preliminary injunctions out there stopping the, the Obama regulations from going into effect. So uh, you have to look to private parties to bring the litigation. But these new regulations are pretty good, but there's one area that is uh, controversial under a separate set of regulations that were proposed several weeks ago, uh, actually late June, by the Biden administration. And that's their new regulations of the Title IX. Now, Title IX, as I mentioned, is, is referenced in Section 1557, so it's part of the list of prohibited grounds. 
as a sex discrimination in education. In putting out their new regs on education, in which, of course, they also overruled the Trump administration position that uh, Title IX is not affected by Bostock. They said, yes, it is affected by Bostock because the reasoning of Bostock applies. But they said, we're going to punt for now on the issue of athletic competition and whether transgender girls and women can participate in uh, academic. It has to be academic because Title IX only applies to educational institutions but whether it applies to women's sports and their ability to participate. We're going to do a separate rulemaking on that because we think there's more work to be done on figuring out how to handle that. And that's a difficult one. That's a very difficult one because of the nature of sports competition and the different sports and the different skills and capabilities involved. And an important factor in that, of course, is when transition begins and how much of male puberty a transgender girl has undergone before they transitioned. And uh, if puberty blockers are used really, really early, does that eliminate any advantage of being genetically male that they might have in athletic competition? And the various different sports federations have been taking different positions on that as, as to uh, adult uh, competition. but. In the academic field also, uh, we have associations on the state level of, of athletic competition between schools, and we have national, you know, the NCAA, the college level. So everyone's trying to figure this out, and the Biden administration has decided they have to do more study before they decide that. So they don't address that in the new education regs uh, from DOE. But in, in the new regs that were proposed on July 25th by Health and Human Services, they're basically taking the position now that surgery is covered, transitional surgery is covered. They're, they're getting off the fence that the Obama administration was sitting on. And that's one of the reasons why the document that they put out on July 25th runs over 300 pages in its PDF file. And it took me hours working my way through that just to be able to write up an article for law notes about what it covers. And I could only sort of skim the surface. But what they had to do is they had to explain the situation. They had to explain what the previous regs said. They also had to explain what the Obama administration regs said. Then they had to explain what they were changing and why and how this complied with the statute. And then they had they referenced the case law that had been developing because there is a, a lot of case law. So this is, it's like a book. It's like you have to read a book just on the subject of discrimination based on sex under Section 1557. And they, of course, had to explain why the Bostock decision applies, even though it's a Title VII decision. So uh, it's it's really, it's a textbook. Anyone who wants to be thoroughly suffused in it and informed should uh, go on the HHS website and download that PDF file of the proposed regulation. <laughs> and, you, and really, if you're going to issue, if you're going to uh, submit a comment on it, that's going to be of any help. You really should familiarize yourself with what they were saying there. So you can comment on the specific points they're making. But encourage people to submit comments because the comments will help to bolster them on the good moves that they're making. And to the extent that they're, uh, they're not doing something that you think they should be doing in these regs, put it in the comments because under the APA, they have to respond. They have to review all the comments. And in issuing the final reg, they have to explain how they handled the comments. So it's worth commenting if you have the time, the inclination, and the ability to do so.
And you can comment by submitting an electronic document online. Uh, this issue of Warnos, we tell you how to do it. And the PDF file itself tells you how to do it and what to put in the subject line and everything. So it'll go to the right office. So there we do, set you loose. Uh, and we'll see what, what effect our podcast has, how many hundreds of people <laughs> will submit comments on these HHS proposed rates. Okay, so shall we go to our third case? So now we have a story about conversion therapy. And one of the big issues with conversion therapy is the degree to which it can be banned by local governments, by state governments, or even the federal government, if they want to do that. And the big problem we face is the argument by practitioners that conversion therapy is a form of speech or communication by the practitioner. And under the First Amendment, speech, especially content-based regulation of speech, is very much suspect and subject to strict scrutiny. If a court buys into the idea that a governmental ban on the performance of conversion therapy is in fact a regulation of speech or alternatively a regulation of professional practice that has an incidental effect on speech, which would not be subject to strict scrutiny if the court bought that argument. So this particular case coming out of the District of Florida Otto versus City of Boca Raton. Back in 2017, Boca Raton and Palm Beach County both passed ordinances forbidding uh, SOCH practitioners, SOCH being S-O-C-E, the abbreviation for sexual orientation change efforts. They don't like the term conversion therapy. They prefer SOCH. So uh, they uh, prohibited the performance of this on minors, basically. And two social practitioners claimed that their First Amendment rights were violated because they only did talk therapy. They said, we don't do any other conduct. It's entirely talk therapy. And uh, therefore, it should be fully protected by the First Amendment. And it should be presumed to be unconstitutional unless the governmental unit involved can show that it has a compelling interest, which can only be achieved by this particular regulation. Uh, which is narrowly tailored to achieve that. So uh, the district judge, confronted with the motion by the municipalities to dismiss this lawsuit, agreed to dismiss the lawsuit. The, the trial judge said, based on the pleadings and the record before me at this point, it seems to me there is a consensus of leading medical associations that SOCH can uh, cause psychological harm to young people, and it does not change their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And by the way, we know from a case in New Jersey that was litigated that at least in, in, in a New Jersey case, it was found that it violated the consumer protection laws to contend that one can change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity through conversion therapy. But that's not the approach that was taken here. The, there was a governmental ban directly by these two local governments. Uh, so the district judge dismissed it or rather she, she denied preliminary injunctions. This wasn't even a motion to dismiss. It was, she denied preliminary injunctions, which the practitioners sought to stop the enforcement of these ordinances. So they appealed the denial of the preliminary injunctions and they got a three judge panel of the uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals because this was coming out of the District Court in Florida. And uh, one thing we have to bear in mind when we talk about the 11th Circuit, there are 11 active judges on the 11th Circuit Six out of the 11, a majority were appointed by Donald Trump. 
the chief judge of the circuit was appointed by George W. Bush and is just as conservative as the Trump appointees. So that's seven. The remaining four, one was appointed by Bill Clinton and four were appointed by Barack, uh, three were appointed by Barack Obama. So that makes 11. And there's one vacancy that Biden hasn't filled yet. And he better hurry up. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen with the Senate? So at any rate, the uh, three judge panel, two Trump judges, one, one actually Obama administration judge who has since retired and who's the dissenting judge. The uh, three judge panel ruled two to one a year ago, actually more than a year ago, on November 20, 2020, ruled that the trial judge was incorrect, that these conversion therapy bans violated the First Amendment or probably violated the First Amendment. And therefore, the uh, plaintiffs had shown a likelihood of success on the merits, and they should have issued the preliminary injunctions, and they ordered them to issue the preliminary injunctions. But a mandate was never issued at that time because there was a suggestion for on-bank review pending before the court. And the suggestion for on-bank review remained pending for a long time. You know, it's, it's just July 20th that they announced that they were not going to give on-bank review. And not surprisingly, the vote was seven to four. Uh, all of the Trump appointees, plus the chief judge, uh, Bush appointee, were against granting on-bank review. And the only votes in favor of on-bank review came from the one remaining Clinton appointee and the two, uh, three remaining uh, Obama appointees. And as I mentioned, the judge who uh, was the dissenter on the three-judge panel is retired. And that's the vacancy that's waiting for Biden to fill. Now, normally, when a court denies on-bank review, they don't issue an opinion explaining why. But what happened in this case was the author of the panel opinion, who is uh, Judge Britt Grant, who is, of course, a Trump appointee, wrote a concurring opinion, concurring in the decision to deny on-bank review and to allow the, the panel decision to stand. Uh, she was joined by uh, two other judges who were appointed by Donald Trump. And there were dissenting opinions written or joined by all of the four judges uh, appointed by Democratic presidents, uh, one by uh, Judge Adalberto Jordan, Obama appointee, joined by Judges Rosenbaum and Pryor, as well as Judge Charles Wilson, who was Clinton appointee. And Judge Rosenbaum writes an extended dissenting opinion which basically takes upon and expands upon the dissenting opinion that was written by the retired judge, explaining that, in fact, there was a very, very full record on the preliminary injunction litigation showing uh, that there was a firm basis for the trial judge concluding that plaintiffs had shown that the uh, administration of conversion therapy may cause serious irreparable injury, serious harm to the youngsters who are subjected to it. She also pointed out that contrary to uh, the arguments by the plaintiffs that all of this treatment was consensual, she said, these are minors. And this is, these are situations where uh, you know, minors on their own can't usually consent to, uh, to uh, healthcare. The parents have to consent. And these are cases she said, more often than not, where it's the parents that are forcing the kids into conversion therapy. 
and uh, where we have some reason to question whether it's in the best interest of the children to subject them to something that the medical professionals tell us is potentially harmful to them. And then there is uh, Judge, Judge Jordan's uh, dissenting opinion, which was joined by the other three. He said that the panel applied the wrong standard for reviewing the denial of the preliminary injunction. He said, because they were, they were applying the standard that you use to review a summary judgment, which occurs after discovery, which occurs when the parties have agreed that there is no material fact that has to be determined by a fact finder in a trial. He said, this is, this is even before a motion to dismiss has been decided. This is a, just a motion for a preliminary injunction. And a preliminary injunction in this case was denied because the judge felt that they had shown a likelihood of success on the merits. And he said, the question whether they have a likelihood of success on the merits could be argued, depending on how you interpret case law, uh, how you interpret what conversion of therapy consists of. He says, they're alleging that it's just talk therapy. And the, the panel said, oh, it's just conversation. It's not even medical treatment at all. And he said, that wasn't for the panel to do. He said, in reviewing a denial of an, a preliminary injunction, the role of the panel is to decide whether a clear error was made by the trial judge. And as long as there is plenty in the record to support the trial judge's opinion, even if you disagree with it, it's a contested matter. It's a contested matter of material fact, whether conversion therapy as practiced by these plaintiffs or as practiced more generally is merely conversation or is a form of medical treatment that is potentially harmful. And Judge, Judge Jordan basically accused the panel of overstepping the bounds of what it's supposed to do on ruling on an appeal from such a denial of a preliminary injunction and deciding facts for themselves that are contested facts that an appellate panel should not be deciding. He said, this, this is not clear error by the trial judge. The trial judge was reflecting a consensus of the medical community, which was well-documented in the legislative history of these ordinances. These ordinances was, were not just posed and breezed through. There were hearings, there was testimony, there were submissions and affidavits, there was a review of the medical literature by uh, the members of the, uh, of the city council and the county council. There was a big record here. And there was, there was plenty in the record on which the trial judge could base their conclusion. And therefore it was not clear error. Right, so that that true signature is from everybody, all the dissenters. The Judge Rosenbaum's uh, dissenting opinion was joined by Judge Pryor. And this is Judge Jill Pryor, the Obama appointee, not William Pryor, the chief judge. There's no relation between the two. Pryor seems to be a very popular name down south. But in any event, the 11th Circuit's denial of on-bank review seems to... Uh, have lit a fire under the Florida Health Department as, as we were discussing before we started making the recording. They issued uh, new guidelines on August 1st against the provision of gender-affirming care to minors in Florida. I'm not sure if those have the force of law or they're just guidelines, but I, I, I don't think they're regulations. So uh, I think that there must be a procedure in Florida, just as there is under federal law for adopting legally binding regulations of some sort. But 
these are emanating from the board that uh, controls the licensing procedure for doctors. So doctors will be deterred from providing gender-affirming care in Florida unless these are quickly challenged. And I'm sure there will be a lawsuit on file very quickly. But the 11th Circuit's denial of on-bank review means that if the city of Boca Raton or Palm Beach County want to file a cert petition, they can get this up to the Supreme Court. It seems very likely they could get it up to the Supreme Court, partly because in the main case that the three-judge panel relied on, it was a Supreme Court decision called National Institute of Family and Life Associates versus Becerra, which is more commonly known as NIFLA from its acronym, NIFLA versus Becerra, which was a decision by the Supreme Court in 2018, which came out not long before the panel issued its, its decision uh, in 2020, in which Justice Thomas, writing for the court, cast doubt on the appropriateness of rulings by the Third and Ninth Circuits, rejecting First Amendment challenges to uh, conversion therapy bans enacted in the states of New Jersey and California. That was a case where the Supreme Court said that professional speech is to be treated like all other speech. And if professional speech is merely incidental to professional conduct, then maybe it, it isn't subject to strict scrutiny. But looking at those cases, he said those cases just said, oh, it's professional speech. The state can regulate it. The First Amendment strict scrutiny standard doesn't apply. He stated disagreement with that in his opinion for the court in the NIFLA case. Now, the NIFLA case is very distinguishable. The NIFLA case is about compelled speech, not restrictions on speech. Uh, the state of California said that reproductive health clinics that were established throughout the state by anti-abortion people to try to uh, persuade people not to have abortions. The, the state said, you have to let these people know that you are not licensed by the state and you have to let them know where they can get abortions and other reproductive health uh, treatment. Uh, you have to be, uh, you have to inform them of what their alternatives are. And uh, they sued and the Supreme Court said that is compelled speech, it violates the First Amendment. But this is different. This isn't about compelled speech. This is about the speech of counselors performing sexual orientation change efforts and whether the state can restrict that on grounds of uh, protecting minors from a potentially harmful procedure to which they're being subjected without true consent in most cases. So very different uh, issues, but there is a circuit split at this point uh, because we have the 11th circuit panel which uh, the on-bank court refused to review, taking the position that conversion therapy is in fact just conversation. It's just speech. It should be regulated like all other speech. It's not any different. And that the states doesn't have a compelling interest here because we question whether it's harmful, whether it's been proved that it's harmful. They, even though there's this big consensus of all the leading professional associations, they said, well, who decides what's the leading association? And on what basis did they say that? And we've seen studies saying that it isn't harmful, blah, 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 blah. Which sounds to me like it's a, an issue of material fact that is relevant here. And so it shouldn't be decided on a preliminary injunction motion. Well, it sounds like far from the final word on so-called conversion therapy efforts, yes. both in Florida and nationwide. But there's a big question looming. Do these municipalities want to get this to the Supreme Court? Do we as a movement want the current Supreme Court to be deciding this issue? But in the absence 
of a binding national precedent. This is going to be waged, and more and more jurisdictions have been passing bans on conversion therapy, both municipalities and states. Now, in Florida, there's another lawsuit in which a, uh, a judge held that the locality was preempted for banning conversion therapy because the state was the licensing body for professional counselors. And that is an issue that didn't go up to the 11th Circuit here because the trial judge didn't issue a preliminary injunction with respect to anything. And uh, when they decided to appeal, the plaintiffs in this case decided just to appeal the First Amendment issue. They didn't present the preemption issue to the 11th Circuit panel. So uh, I'm not sure exactly where things stand in Florida right now. <laughs> we have one federal district court saying that the, the localities are preempted from banning conversion therapy. And now we have a preliminary injunction because after the 11th Circuit denied on bank review, the mandate was sent out from the panel decision, which means there will be a preliminary injunction against enforcing the ban. I'm told by a local lawyer down there that no one has filed any complaints under these ordinances. And so uh, it's, it's not as if anything is happening there. Part of the problem is who's going to file these complaints? We have kids who are receiving conversion therapy if, they, if there are kids who are receiving conversion therapy in these two jurisdictions, presumably at the instance of their parents in most cases, and the parents aren't going to file a complaint because they want the conversion therapy, unless you get a parent who's disenchanted because the conversion therapy doesn't work, or a parent who has a change of heart when a child tries to kill themselves, which we're told is sometimes the result of conversion therapy. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. And so many of the bans in Florida are almost carbon copies of each other, as, as we saw this spread across Florida from all these little individual localities, since given the political climate in Florida, there's no way we could expect a statewide ban on so-called conversion therapy practices. Yeah. And, and so if there's preemption, there's not much we can do without a change of state administration. But on a broader note, I have enough note item. One of the big issues out of Bostock, obviously, was whether it applies to other federal sex discrimination bans. But another question is, how strong is the Bostock opinion as a persuasive precedent for those states that ban sex discrimination under their state laws, but don't expressly cover sexual orientation or gender identity? This is one of the questions that I immediately had after I read the Bostock decision. I said, well, this this is portable reasoning, and maybe it'll convince states and localities that already ban sex discrimination, that their existing laws ban discrimination because of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so far, there has been progress on that front, although uh, unfortunately, several, that, several of the cases have been federal district courts in diversity cases being asked, what, would, what do you think the state courts will do? because we've got a sexual orientation or a gender identity claim here, and the state law bans sex discrimination, but doesn't mention the others. What do you think the state will do? And in a few cases, they've said, yes, we think the state has a practice of following Title VII precedents. So they will follow the Title VII precedent. But here we have a decision from the Michigan Supreme Court that says so, that uh, was issued on July 28th, just in time to hit the August issue of Law Notes, a five to two ruling by the Michigan Supreme Court which overruled a 1993 Michigan Court of Appeals decision that rejected a sexual orientation discrimination claim under the state's Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, referred to by its acronym as ELCRA. Hmm. 
so uh, the court said, look, we read Justice Gorsuch's opinion, and they quote at length several paragraphs in which Gorsuch sets out his analysis. They said, we're persuaded. Uh, we think the, uh, the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, which doesn't just cover employment, it's public accommodations. In fact, the case involved here is a public accommodations case. We think it's covered, both sexual orientation. Well, sexual orientation, we think is covered. We don't have to decide whether gender identity is covered in this case, because the Court of Appeals has already decided gender identity is covered, and that hasn't been appealed to us. The reason that the Supreme Court confronted this was because the same Court of Appeals decision that said that gender identity is covered, in reliance on the Bostock decision, said, unfortunately, we're bound by prior precedent from 1993 that says that sexual orientation isn't covered. So they dismissed that part of the case, and the state civil rights department appealed. And that's why it came up to uh, the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court reversed and said, no, sexual orientation is covered. So theoretically, at least now, if you're in a lower court, the Court of Appeals decision on gender identity is a binding precedent for the lower courts. And the Court of Appeals decision on sexual orientation was reversed, that 1993 decision. And now the Supreme Court says that sexual orientation is covered. So uh, they've been trying for years to get a gay rights bill through the Michigan legislature without success. Now the issue will be blocking a bad bill, trying to overrule the court's decision. I don't know if the Republican majorities in the legislature are large enough uh, for that to be uh, in prospect. We'll have to see. But maybe they'll just let it lie where it lies. Because the Bostock reasoning has proved very persuasive to lower court judges. The issue is how far does it extend beyond Title VII? And there are uh, judges appointed by President Trump who've issued preliminary injunctions against its application to Title IX or uh, to the Fair Housing Act or other statutes. Uh, so we've got to watch that. The Biden administration takes the position it applies across the board pretty much to all federal sex discrimination statutes. And the Michigan Supreme Court, I don't think they're the only court uh, that's ruled on this. I think the Missouri Supreme Court may have had something on Bostock, and there may be some others out there. But this is a, a pretty strong opinion. The dissenters say, oh, you're, you're legislating, you shouldn't be doing this. The, the Bostock is a federal decision, it's not a binding precedent. We have a Court of Appeals decision from 1993 that everyone's been following. If you wanna change it, we should go to the legislature. But they say, but we don't, we don't dispute the outcome. <laughs> Uh, as a matter of policy, we would say, you know, if this was a fresh question for us, but we think at this point it should be the legislature that decides. So, uh, but that's just dissenting opinions, and it's a five to two majority opinion. So, some good news out of Michigan. Thank you for the uplifting of note for this month. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.